Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In 1896, Mrs. Caroline Astor moved into a colossal new French chateau on Fifth Avenue at 65th Street, a palace designed by Richard Morris Hunt and one of dozens of such opulent homes decorating the avenue. It was here that the aging matriarch of high society attempted to retain her control over New York's social scene. In the adjacent mansion lived her son John Jacob Astor IV and his family. Thirty years later, Mrs. Astor and her son were gone, and it was announced that the Astor mansion would be demolished. In April of 1926, hundreds gathered for an auction to carry away the Astor's imported French decor. Out the door went the paneling, the iron gates, the tapestries, porcelains, and marble mantelpieces, and dozens of austere paintings. All the fittings of Gilded Age opulence now faded, sold, and taken away. Next, the walls of the Astor Palace came tumbling down. Neighborhood children rummaged through the ruins, playing among the remnants of the old Astor Ballroom. By the fall, most traces of this ostentatious mansion had been wiped away. But unlike so many other vanished architectural treasures, few mourn this lost Astor Mansion, because in its place rises an even grander, more exceptional building, and one that might have flummoxed Old Caroline, not a home for the wealthy, but a house of worship for a historically important Jewish congregation with roots to the Lower East Side. The Bowery Boys episode 383, Congregation Emmanuel and the Temple on Fifth Avenue. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young, and I'm going solo this week for a look at one of the most interesting buildings in New York City. I know I say that all the time, but this time I mean it. Temple Emmanuel at Fifth Avenue and 65th Street, overlooking Central Park. Emmanuel is one of the largest synagogues in the world. It is also one of the most beautiful spaces in the city, especially at certain hours of the day when sunlight streams through the colorful stained glass windows, projecting a rainbow upon its rows of pews. 
The temple is a marvel of 20th century design, more stylistically related to the Empire State Building than the old synagogues of Lower Manhattan. From modern interpretations of Byzantine decoration to its gleaming Art Deco mosaics by Hildreth Meyer. The sanctuary is 103 feet high, just 22 feet shorter than the main concourse of Grand Central Terminal. It is breathtaking and awe-inspiring. The synagogue is the home of Congregation Emmanuel, New York's very first Reformed Jewish congregation, over 175 years old. Their story is bonded to the synagogue itself. Along a row of brightly colored stained glass windows are depictions of the congregation's prior homes in New York. The windows tell the story of prosperity, with each past synagogue more sumptuous and grand than the last. It's also an immigration tale of new arrivals seeking a better life in America and most assuredly finding it. And like so many of our stories here, which have come before here, this story begins on the Lower East Side. By the late 1820s, almost 200 years ago, there were about 5,700 German immigrants who had arrived in the United States. By the following decade, that number would rise to almost 150,000. And then by the 1840s, that number would triple. The Germans who came to America seeking new opportunities fanned across the country, but most stayed in New York. By 1855, according to the book Gotham, New York City had become one of the three capitals of the German-speaking world, outranked only by Berlin and Vienna. The center of New York German life was Klein Deutschland, portions of today's Lower East Side and East Village neighborhoods. The new arrivals were arranged widely by class, from a wide assortment of German-speaking states and countries, and even by occupation, from street peddlers and day laborers to writers and brewers. But most before the year 1850 lived here in this concentrated neighborhood, with restaurants, beer gardens, cafes, and theaters, which reflected life from the old country. Within Kleindeutschland, as often with many immigrant districts, people tended to live and socialize next to people from other regions. So Bavarians with other Bavarians, for instance, Prussians near other Prussians. Another way that German immigrants in particular organized is through social clubs or Verein. In her book, The Great Disappearing Act, author Christina A. Ziegler McPherson discusses the many different kinds of social organizations which defined German New York. Quote, Verein were the foundation of Kleindeutschland as an immigrant community. There were thousands of Verein in New York, and it was common for a person, especially a man, to be a member of several. Unquote. There were clubs for everything. Music clubs, shooting clubs, clubs for German history, clubs for different trades, and clubs for most places of origin. And, of course, there were even clubs for religion, for German Protestants and German Catholics and for German Jews. Now, for more on the origins of Jewish life in New York, actually going back to the Dutch settlement of New Amsterdam, revisit our 2019 show on the Eldridge Street Synagogue. That's episode 304. 
At the start of the 19th century, New York's Jewish community was Sephardic in origin, with roots in Spanish and Portuguese communities. But the newly arrived German-Jewish worshippers were Ashkenazi, a different region of the world from the first Jewish settlers. With greater numbers over the years, a significant life for German-Jewish immigrants developed on the Lower East Side, outside the constraints of the synagogue. Many young Jewish arrivals took their cues from the Age of Enlightenment, the philosophical movement which swept through Europe in the 18th century, which prioritized rational thought and individual freedom over religious traditions. For many, the modern world seemed incompatible with religious ritual, and here in New York, it seemed freer to pursue new directions. For instance, on October 13, 1843, a group of German-Jewish immigrants and members of a religious-based Verein met at Sinsheimer's Café on Essex Street and formed a new fraternal society called B'nai B'rith, which was service-oriented in nature, outward-facing to the world, advocating for Jewish causes. It was formed to, quote, overcome geographical differences among Jewish people of various nations and to revive the spirit of Jewish unity. But new ideas also took hold within the synagogue as well. The most influential rabbis in Germany often kept their congregations in sync and new ideas at bay. But in America, there were no such gatekeepers. In 1825, a significant split occurred within New York's small Jewish community when Ashkenazi Jewish worshippers departed from Sharif Israel, New York's first Jewish congregation, and formed a new one called B'nai Jethurin. There was no going back. According to author Tobias Brinkman in his book, The Jewish Metropolis, quote, Sharith Israel was the only synagogue in New York for nearly a century. 35 years after B'nai Jethurin became the city's second synagogue, there were 27 congregations in Gotham. Most of these new Jewish congregations were inspired by a movement called Reform Judaism. Although reform had its roots in Germany, it flourished in the United States, where religious liberty was considered a foundational belief. Reformers resided between the secular and the traditional. The central idea was to bring Judaism into the modern world, keeping the core ethics, but shedding some of the ritual and elevating individual autonomy. For New York's new arrivals, they asked the questions, how do you fit an ancient religion into a modern city? And how can it still appeal to younger people faced with so many modern ideas and the necessity to fit into American life? In 1845, 33 members of another religious Verein rented a hall at Grand and Clinton Streets on the Lower East Side and formed Congregation Emmanuel. Most of its members were familiar with the intellectual ideas of reform back in Germany. Some were fairly wealthy, and many were, or would soon be, prominent and successful businessmen in New York. Their name was also a political statement. Emmanuel, God is with us. God is with us. 
the future of the Jewish faith. They immediately looked to expand. I found a classified ad in the New York Herald from the summer of 1845 looking for investors for a new home. Quote, a rare chance to invest in a safe and profitable way by erecting a building for divine worship for the Emmanuel congregation of this city. Instead, they would do what many Jewish congregations would end up doing, moving into an old Christian church. In this case, a Methodist church at 56 Christie Street. It was renovated by a young Jewish architect named Leopold Eidlitz, allowing room for the congregation to expand. Now, those adhering to tradition might have been shocked to hear worshipers reading from prayer books in German, not the traditional Hebrew. Later still, they would be read in English, another radical twist. Other bold changes were made, inspired by leading reformist rabbis in America, like Isaac Meyer Wise, who introduced confirmation to American Jewish worshipers in 1846 as an alternative to the bar mitzvah. According to Michael A. Mayer, author of Response to Modernity, a history of the reform movement, quote, Wise became a persistent enthusiast of America, seldom its critic. For Jews caught up in the process of Americanization, his reformist ideas answered their question as to if and how Judaism could be related to the American milieu. Ancient Israel, he suggested to them, was the prototype of American democracy. Loyalty to Judaism was therefore very good Americanism, unquote. Oh, and there was something else that might have scandalized the uninitiated, an organ. Jewish choral music had been introduced in the early 19th century in Europe, and at Temple Emmanuel, it was accompanied by an organ, perhaps, at least to American ears of the day, more familiar in the setting of a German Lutheran service. Women also sang in the choir, another radical change. It was also here that the congregation initiated its most dramatic new program of all, family seating, men, women, and children sitting together. The pews, after all, were left over from a Christian setting and quite a different arrangement from the more conservative and orthodox congregations, their neighbors on the Lower East Side. By the 1850s, Congregation Emmanuel had outgrown the synagogue, and they made a big move in 1854 into another vacated church, in this case, 12th Street Baptist Church between 3rd and 4th Avenues. Now, this kept them on the Lower East Side barely, but they were far away from most of the other synagogues. This was also a symbolic move. The congregation was not only more progressive, they were also of a different social class by this period. Its pews filled with congregants of the middle and upper middle class. The former peddlers had become merchants, bankers, and publishers. Emmanuel had become the most successful and the most famous Jewish congregation in the United States. Many of its congregants no longer had anything in common with the Lower East Side. They would need to move again. On September 11th, 1868, 
A new temple was consecrated by Rabbi Wise, and its debut caused something of a ruckus. According to the New York Times, quote, When the doors were opened, there was a crushing and crowding in which ladies' crinoline and gentlemen's hats suffered severely. A large police force was present and tempered the impatience of the throng very considerably. The new Temple Emmanuel was located at 43rd Street and 5th Avenue, not an inconspicuous location. In fact, the corner was chosen to make a profound social statement on several fronts. Once considered remote, this stretch of Fifth Avenue was growing quite fashionable, thanks in part to the brownstone mansion of William Backhouse Astor Jr. and his wife Caroline at 34th Street and Fifth Avenue. While the Murray Hill Reservoir would sit just a block away from the new synagogue at 42nd Street, the streets around it were filling up with fine new homes. And then just up Fifth Avenue at 50th Street, Lower Manhattan Catholics were also making an ambitious move at this time with their new home, St. Patrick's Cathedral. The new Emmanuel would become one of the avenue's most unique buildings, designed in a Moorish revival style by Leopold Eidlitz, who had worked on the Christie Street Synagogue and was now one of America's most in-demand architects. When it opened, it was the largest synagogue in the United States, in yellow brownstone with black and red roof tiling, its grand narrow turrets commanding attention over the avenue. It was a spectacular building, the purpose of which had never been seen before on Fifth Avenue. Most importantly, it announced that New York's Jewish population would not be ignored. The New York Times declared that Emmanuel had become, quote, the first to stand forward before the world and proclaim the dominion of reason over blind and bigoted faith. The prominence of the Fifth Avenue Synagogue would not have been surprising to those familiar with the notable New Yorkers who were or would soon consider themselves congregants at Emmanuel. Their biographies were similar. German Jewish immigrants or the sons of immigrants who had worked themselves up from street peddling to retail, publishing and banking, becoming leaders of industry. Marcus Goldman, Henry Emanuel and Mayor Lehman, Adolf Ox, the publisher of the New York Times. Joseph Seligman was president at Temple Emanuel, and later on Jacob Schiff was also active with the congregation considered New York's foremost Jewish leader during the Gilded Age. And yet what might be considered an American success story did not mean wealthy Jewish New Yorkers were allowed into the restricted corridors of Manhattan high society, governed by old money and Christian heritage, overwhelmingly Protestant and largely Episcopalian. Ward McAllister, the stern and churlish referee of Gilded Age New York, ensured that no Jewish socialite would ever dance upon the floor of Mrs. Astor's ballroom. But the congregation of Temple Emmanuel would have the last laugh. Other congregations soon followed the example of Emmanuel, moving up the island of Manhattan to build fabulously ornamented new synagogues. 
the home of Congregation Ahavid Keset, today known as Central Synagogue, was constructed at Lexington Avenue and East 55th Street, completed in 1872. Another Reformed congregation, Bethel, built their synagogue at 76th Street and 5th Avenue in 1891. And even Orthodox Jewish congregations got into the act. In 1890, Congregation Zikran Ephraim moved into their new home at East 67th Street, today known as Park East Synagogue. Many of these new houses of worship were in the same Moorish revival style as Temple Emmanuel, creating a unique contrast to other forms of architecture during the Gilded Age. Congregations were growing rapidly because New York was growing rapidly, of course, but a big part of that growth involved new Jewish immigrants, mostly from Russia and Eastern Europe. Quoting from Deborah Dashmore's brilliant history on Jewish New York, between 1880 and 1924, two and a half million Eastern European Jews came to the United States. Close to 85% of them landed in New York City, and approximately 75% of those settled initially on the Lower East Side. Unquote. With greater numbers came greater visibility, which was sort of a mixed bag for those older Jewish families who had little in common with these new Yiddish-speaking immigrants. Other changes in the 20th century crept closer to Emmanuel's Fifth Avenue doorstep. By 1904, the heart of the Broadway Theater District had arrived at the crossroad of 42nd Street and 7th Avenue, Long Anchor Square, to be renamed Times Square. So had the new subway system. On top of that, that old reservoir at the corner of 42nd Street and 5th Avenue, well, that was replaced by the New York Public Library. The homes of the wealthy, which once lined the avenue, were being replaced by department stores and office buildings. And in 1913, the new Grand Central Terminal opened just a few blocks down the street. In other words, it was all getting very noisy and neither very respectful nor very respectable. It was in this series of Fifth Avenue mansions tumbling down, in fact, that would give Temple Emmanuel a new home. On the morning of April 15, 1912, the RMS Titanic hit an iceberg and sank into the ocean. More than 1,500 individuals died from all walks of life and from both sides of the Atlantic, passengers and crew, first class and steerage. Among those notable New Yorkers who lost their lives that day were names which reverberated through New York's Jewish circles. Isidore Strauss, co-owner of Macy's Department Store, and his wife, Ida Strauss and Benjamin Guggenheim, the son of mining magnate Mayor Guggenheim and the husband of Florette Seligman. Guggenheim and the Strausses were mourned throughout New York at Temple Bethel, Temple Emmanuel, and other synagogues throughout the city. Another notable New Yorker who lost his life that day was John Jacob Astor IV, prominent member of the Astor family who lived in that palatial double mansion at 65th and 5th Avenue. His mother, Mrs. Caroline Astor, had long since passed. When John Jacob died, the bulk of his fortune, including the house, 
went to his son Vincent Astor, who would choose to distribute much of the family wealth to charitable causes. And he got rid of that ostentatious house, moving further up the island. In 1925, Congregation Emmanuel voted to move from its 43rd Street site and purchased the old Astor property. By 1927, the Astor ruin was wiped away. An excavation began on the new Temple Emmanuel. That same year, the congregation then merged with that of Temple Bethel because their new combined home was going to be big enough for both of them. When the new building opened in 1929, it would be the world's largest synagogue. When I return, we go inside the new Temple Emmanuel and look at the secrets of the building's architecture with two historians from the congregation. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, 
sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Today's show is brought to you by For the Ages, the podcast of the New York Historical Society. The New York Historical Society produces a must-listen-to podcast exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversation on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the untold stories by people who have shaped American history. Historian David Blight won a Pulitzer Prize for his book about Frederick Douglass. How did a surgeon inspire him to write it? Winston Churchill helped the British people find their own courage during World War II. How did he do it? Historian Eric Larson will tell you that and what poem Churchill quoted while watching a German air raid from a rooftop. You'll also find out why the Battle of Britain was a failure for the Germans and the target Hitler did not want them to hit. A fascinating look at the life of Henry Louis Gates Jr. reveals how his life was affected by six people living during the American Revolution. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss examines war and the presidents who initiated them. Did you know that years of war in Vietnam were caused by a congressional resolution based on an incident that LBJ knew never happened? Other conversations have included Pulitzer Prize winner Robert Caro offering a first-hand perspective on his writing process, and Ron Chernow on his biography of Hamilton and his involvement with the musical. That's For the Ages. Available on Apple and Spotify. New episodes every week. If you attend services at Temple Emmanuel, or you've even been here on an open house tour, you've probably heard Mark Heitlinger, administrator of the congregation, speak about the building. So welcome to Temple Emmanuel. Thank you. Temple Emmanuel, this happens to be the fifth home of Temple Emmanuel. While we were founded in 1845, we moved four times to this current location, Temple Emmanuel occupies the space that was once held by the Astor family. And in its place, around 1927 to 1929, built this edifice in a remarkably short period of time of two years. The reasoning for that basically was the utilization of both the I-beam and the elevator. In fact, it was called the Skyscraper Temple because it went up so quickly. You know the Empire State Building went up in about 13 months. Mm -hmm. Temple Emanuel went up in about two years. That included the adornment of the inside of the sanctuary. Emanuel is considered to be one of the landmark edifices here in New York. And I would suggest modestly, of course, that Emanuel is one of the most beautiful sanctuaries in the world. Its seating capacity today is 2,500 in its main sanctuary, which was a 50% increase from the prior sanctuary located uh, on Fifth Avenue at 43rd Street. Warren explained to me the unique collaboration behind the building's architecture, designed by Robert D. Cohn, Charles Butler, and Clarence Stein, 
and many, many others. Mark had mentioned that once the foundation was laid, it was just about two years uh, until the edifice was complete. So one way in which we were able to have that happen was we didn't have one firm working on the adornments. So it wasn't one firm working on the windows, it was something like seven. Uh, It was one person just doing the mosaic work, another person doing the metal work. So those are kind of the different aspects that we're able to do it so quickly. Whereas some aspects of Temple Emmanuel harken back to 19th century architectural styles, this is no relic. From its limestone facade to its striking mosaics and tile, the synagogue embodies history through the lens of jazz age design. What you're talking about are the 20s. You're talking about the roaring 20s, the 20s of speed, the 20s of the sleek, the 20s of what was then called style modern, modernism, art deco, which is what the overriding theme of the sanctuary is today. It was a term that wasn't used really until I think the 1960s, Uh, but style modern was what it was built in. And this modernism was enabling the congregation to combine the modernity of the reform movement with the modernity of the architecture of the day. And thus it looks as it does in order to project, I would almost suggest a political statement, Mm -hmm. a political statement of arrival. We are here. Mm -hmm. We're not going anywhere. Get used to us. (laughs) The Upper East Side at this point was not a Jewish neighborhood. It was during the age of the conclusion of the Beaux-Arts mansions that were up and down Fifth Avenue at the time. And the transition between that gilded age into the, again, modernity of the 20s, everything was possible. In a booklet with renderings of the architecture published prior to its consecration, Emmanuel makes this political statement clear. Quote, American religious life must express itself anew to meet the changed forms of its service, just as our secular life, though using old characters, has found architectural forms that tend towards a new and distinctly American expression. While today we look at many Art Deco design features as classic, ideas that might have been passed down for centuries... It was actually responding to a broadening understanding of our world, of how people actually lived, via the latest new discoveries in archaeology. And even the use of mosaics, too, in our sanctuary. I mean, it's a little bit unusual, but I think, again, not unusual for the time. You know, the painted ceiling, the mosaics, you know, these were times of great discovery, you know, in other parts of the world, thinking about Byzantine mosaics and the research that was going on there, the painted ceiling and the discovery of discoveries in Egypt that were being made, too. So I think these were all aspects that the architects of the building, you know, were thinking about in tandem with the clergy and the trustees at the time. Very key to the synagogue's grandiosity is the fact that it's actually the home of these two merged congregations, Emmanuel and Bethel, which had moved from its imposing home further up the avenue. Temple Bethel was located on Fifth Avenue at 76th Street and dominated the Upper East Side. 
Very Byzantine in its architectural design. I heard the ceiling always leaked anyway, so. Uh, <laughs> but in 729, when Bethel was consolidated into Emmanuel, these same German-Jewish families came together. Emmanuel, being the stronger of the two congregations at that time, retained its name. But our chapel, our magnificent Bethel Chapel, was named in perpetuity for the congregation with which we were consolidated. You know, Bethel was kind of further uptown, but Emmanuel was kind of in this commercial district that 43rd Street was was in right now. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of meeting in the middle, um, I think in more ways than one. But this plot of land, this spot of the former Astor Mansion, was convenient in other ways to the congregation, and that was by design. After all, we're now talking a city of automobiles. For the late 19th century, a sizable enclave of middle-class Jewish families lived on the west side of Central Park, on the Upper West Side. They purposely chose the site of 65th and 5th because it ran between the transverses of Central Park, thus making the access between the east side and the west side very uh, hospitable for the congregation. So, again, another reasoning for its exact, precise location. The landscape of Jewish New York looked very different by the 1930s. The children of Russian and Eastern European immigrants from the Lower East Side were now prosperous and moving out of that neighborhood to areas far and wide, of course, and into uptown houses of worship, like Temple Emmanuel. Soon there would be more worshipers of Eastern European origin than German. To quote from Stephen Birmingham's book, The Rest of Us, the upward and outward mobility of the Eastern Europeans had been so rapid that Russian Jews were able to afford the higher rents of the fashionable Upper East Side now and were moving there in goodly numbers. The old guard had given way to the new, who had overcome by sheer numbers." Unquote. This only reinforced how fashionable Temple Emmanuel had become and how important it was to New York's larger Jewish community. A great many funerals and memorial services for prominent Jewish Americans have been held at the synagogue, from that of prominent lawyer Louis Marshall, whose body lay in state in the chapel at Emmanuel during its first month of operation in September of 1929. Some of the features weren't even done then. To funny lady Joan Rivers, whose 2014 memorial service drew a chaotic cluster of celebrities. One event that I found particularly moving was the 1933 funeral service of Belle Moskowitz, the social worker turned advisor and confidant to Governor Al Smith. Over 3,000 people arrived to pay their last respects to Moskowitz, including Eleanor Roosevelt proclaimed the New York Daily News one of the largest services ever accorded a woman. Another context to Emmanuel's importance during this period was the rise in anti-Semitism in the 1920s and 30s, coming from very prominent corners of American society. In January of 1939, Dr. Samuel Goldenson, rabbi at Temple Emmanuel, declared from the pulpit, quote, there are no free men under Hitler, for Germany is one vast concentration camp. A few weeks later, 
on February 20th, 1939, thousands of American supporters of Adolf Hitler gathered at Madison Square Garden for a rally, brandishing anti-Semitic banners. Yet even through these dark moments, Temple Emmanuel remained a beacon of faith. In 1942, the USO assigned a canteen to Temple Emmanuel, which served and entertained over a million men and women of the armed forces of the United Nations. But we have some great archival photographs of, you know, men and women, you know, again, this was like their their social part of what they could do. So men in uniform and, you know, a lot of our congregants were volunteers and they cooked for them and they served them. To this day, we have couples, elderly couples coming back and telling us how they met in our Isaac Mayer Wise Hall and and touching the wood paneling that was still from 1929, that this is where they they had met. So it's a a tribute to us that we stepped up to the plate as we always have and hopefully always will continue to. In the 1940s, Temple Emmanuel also began broadcasting Shabbat services on radio station WQXR. But in other ways, the congregation, which had been on the forefront of so much change in its lifetime, was not as nimble in reflecting other changes in Reformed Jewish life in the 20th century. Emmanuel was in 19, uh, when it moved into to this location, was considered to be what was known as classical reform. We use the union prayer book. Most, con- most reform congregations, or almost all of them in the country did. But over the course of time, reform, change, took place within the movement, and as such, things changed. But they were very slow to change at Emmanuel. We were an ocean liner that moved at one degree at a time. But as time moved on, our rabbinate changed. Do we have a new senior rabbi at the helm now? The ocean liner took on somewhat jet propulsion speed. And we've now revised our prayer book, keeping the old tradition, but yet bringing it more into the modern age itself. We have uh, increased our involvement with participation by congregants in terms of the services and worship. So it's become much more in line with the reform movement as it exists today in America. Entering the 21st century also meant giving its home a thorough cleaning, as any landmark which survives through New York's 1970s and 80s and 90s period would be very lucky to get. So the maintenance of the building over the course of time somewhat deteriorated. In the early 2000s, we went on a major uh, restoration of the congregational uh, sanctuarial spaces. Led by the team from Bayer Blinder Bell, BBB, we restored Emmanuel, restored it. We didn't renovate Emmanuel. We restored Emmanuel to its glory of 1929. We repainted the ceiling. We cleaned every surface. Today, the synagogue pretty much shimmers looking much like it did when congregants attended its first Shabbat service here in 1929. When you approach the building from the Central Park side, it blends seamlessly with the apartment towers, 
while along the 65th Street side, it still stands across from a row of old townhouses and mansions, one of them holding the Consulate General of Pakistan. It's like the ghost of the Astor Glory days here. But of course, a little bit of that old Astor mansion still exists within Temple Emmanuel. Again, like a lot of people ask us, you know, and, and of course a lot of this is known, what happened to the architecture, the facade, all aspects of the Astor Mansion. And, you know, a lot of it was sold, a lot of it's in museum collections now. But from what I understand, they did keep three fireplace mantles that are now in some of our clergy's offices. Of course, not like the very grand ones that were in the ballroom or the entryway, but perhaps bedrooms or sitting rooms and things like that. After our chat, Mark and Warren took me on a tour through the sanctuary and chapel. Right as the afternoon light poured through the windows, coloring the sanctuary in a vivid sea of primary colors. And they invited me up onto the bima to gaze out at that immense sanctuary. Behind me was the ark, housing the Torah scrolls and designed to look like an open Torah scroll. Above it all is a stained glass wheel window, which their website describes as being, quote, replete with numerical strategies that are a subtext of Jewish mysticism. With its 12 spokes, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, surrounded by 36 little lights, representing the love and vavnik, the righteous in every generation for which the Lord saves for the next generation. The windows above almost form the symbolism of a menorah. And if you look east towards Jerusalem, you can see on either side, the menorahs again in that same thing. So what you're projecting here is the symmetry of the space as an echo of the unity of God. And your eye goes back and forth in terms of the symmetrical layout in order to create again that unified feeling of the oneness of God. A big thank you to Warren Klein and Mark Heitlinger for joining me on today's show and also to Emma Kate Lindsay for pulling all of this together. I'd also like to thank Tanya Bielski-Brahm, Louis Brahm, and Rabbi Jamie Gibson, formerly of Temple Sinai in Pittsburgh, for providing some very valuable insights and help with this show. You should check out Emmanuel's YouTube channel. So no more WQXR for them. And there you'll see videos featuring all different kinds of programming, including the Shabbat remarks of Rabbi Joshua Davidson on the situation in Ukraine. Emmanuel's philanthropic fund has allocated a substantial grant to assist several organizations assisting refugees leaving Ukraine. And they're also pulling together some humanitarian supplies. So if you'd like to see a list and would like to donate, head over to their website, emmanuelnyc.org. And visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have several really amazing images of Temple Emmanuel, including the pictures I took during our interview. A very big cheers and a thank you, very kindly, to those who support the Bowery Boys podcast on Patreon. Our patrons keep the show running, and as a thank you, we provide extra audio goodies, access to merchandise, and other exciting things. 
Our patrons usually know some of our show ideas before anyone else does. So get in on that action. That's patreon.com slash Boys. Now, since I roped Mrs. Astor into the story here, I can't neglect to mention that on The Gilded Gentleman, the spinoff Bowery Boys podcast hosted by Carl Raymond, well, he is spending some time with her rival Alva Vanderbilt in this week's new episode and also spending some time in the kitchen at Delmonico's. So if you've ever wanted to know how to serve peacock for your Sunday dinner, well, he and guest food stylist Victoria Granoff will give you some helpful hints. That's The Gilded Gentleman. Find it wherever you found this show. Meanwhile, Tom is over at the official Gilded Age podcast, dispensing wisdom about New York City history in the context of the HBO show The Gilded Age. So head over there and give him some love. And finally, really, it's going to be a fantastic spring so you really must check out one of the Barry Boys walking tours. There are more tours than ever. There's like tons of tours. I could not believe how many that are planned. It's really exciting from Edith Wharton's New York to the history of the Brooklyn Bridge in a tour led by an actual descendant of the Rowling family. Fabulous. Book yours today at BarryBoysWalks.com. Thank you very much for listening today. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find?